Paul writes, now concerning literally the spirituals, whether that is spiritual things in the neuter or spiritual people, if it's a masculine word. Now concerning the spirituals, brother, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties, diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, workings. But it is the same God who works, empowers them in everybody. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit to another faith or trust by the same Spirit, to another gift of healing by the one Spirit, to another working of miracles or works of power, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues or languages, to another the interpretation of languages. All these are empowered by the one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Well, what if you could uncover one secret about the spiritual realm, just one? What would it be? Perhaps you stumble upon some ancient library where every spiritual mystery is hidden, and you're allowed three minutes, long enough to turn to one page, What would be the truth which would unlock your experience of spiritual things? That's essentially what Paul is promising us here, isn't it? The one truth about matters of the Spirit that will keep us from being uninformed. And so maybe not surprisingly, we tend to turn to these chapters hoping to find whatever it is we think we're missing when it comes to spiritual things. If ever you find a Christian arguing there's some spiritual practice their church should have more of or less of, it's inevitably these next three chapters they'll have pulled it from. If ever you've tried to help and encourage a brother or sister whose faith has been rocked over a debate about prophecy or speaking in tongues, it will be these chapters they've been frantically looking in for answers. After all, this is the instruction manual, isn't it? And if ever you've worried about your own particular spiritual gift, what is it? Well, it's these chapters you'll have been searching. After all, isn't this where we get the menu? If it's on offer, surely I'll find it here. Except that every time we come away without having quite settled the itch. Isn't that true? Because it turns out none of those things are really what Paul thinks we most need to know. There is no one gift that will unlock our experience of God's spirit. In fact, that phrase, spiritual gifts, did you notice as we read, it doesn't actually appear anywhere. Anywhere in the book, or for that matter, anywhere in the Bible. Those are two distinct words used in different parts of this chapter, but 
because they're different ways of talking about a similar thing, our translators have kind of smushed them together there in verse 1. First, there's the thing the Corinthians clearly want to talk about. We see that there in verse 1. This is the third section now in this letter, starting with the same pattern. Paul says, now, concerning such and such, presumably something they've asked about, and then he's gone on to address it. But every time he's addressed it, if you remember, in a slightly subversive way, a yes-but kind of a way, taking their question and gently reframing it, correcting it. We should be expecting something similar here. We've seen that pattern now time and again, haven't we? And the thing they want to talk about, verse 1, is what they call the spirituals. And we can't know grammatically if that means spiritual things or spiritual people. Probably it's both. They want to know about what they think of as the truly spiritual stuff, because those are the things that truly spiritual people do. And by chapter 14, it becomes very clear that there's a particular narrow set of activities they've got in mind. Speech stuff. If there's one thing we know about the Corinthians by now, it's that they loved fancy speech, wise, powerful, mysterious talk. And by chapter 14, it's clear there is one particular kind of talk they love above all, speaking in mysterious languages, the tongues of angels and men. Whatever that meant, whatever that looked like, clearly in the Corinthian mind, that was the properly spiritual stuff. Sure, prophecy's okay, it has its place. Preaching the word of the cross, well, that's all right for a primary school Christian like the Apostle Paul. But for the people truly winning at the Holy Spirit game, while speaking in the tongues of angels, that is surely the deep stuff. They want to talk about the spirituals. How do we get more of that? Why didn't you show us this stuff, Paul? Not much of an apostle, are you? Paul says, brothers, notice that word, I love you, brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant. That is not the deep stuff of the Spirit at all. And in verses 2 to 3, he gives them a totally different way of thinking about what truly makes someone spiritual, before going on to use a totally different word for the work of the Spirit in our lives. Not the spirituals, verse 4, but gifts. They want to talk about being spiritual. Paul wants to talk about grace. So these chapters, I'm afraid, are not going to explain exactly what prophecy is or whether that still happens today. There are things that we might glean, especially in chapter 14, and I'll share my views on that where I can. But it's just not the one thing the Bible thinks we need to know if we're going to love and enjoy God the Spirit. There is something far deeper, far more wonderful that makes a truly spiritual Christian. And these first 11 verses introduce us to that. True spirituality shows in what we confess about Jesus, not in the jobs we do for Jesus. First verses 1 to 3, how do you spot a truly spiritual person? Well, true spirituality shows in what we confess about Jesus. They're right, the Corinthians, our words do matter. 
but they're looking for altogether the wrong kind of speaking, the kind of speech that had far more to do with their pagan past than the gospel of Jesus. So don't confuse being spiritual with the kind of religion that the dumb demons demand. Notice that very significant adjective he uses in verse 2 to describe the idols they used to worship. Right in a section of the letter all about spiritual speech, he calls those idols mute, speechless. But he doesn't exactly mean they were lifeless, does he? There are other spiritual forces at play in this cosmos. We've met them already behind those pagan idols. And look how sinister Paul's implication is here. However you were led, isn't that an ominous way of putting things? Whatever that was leading you back then, before you were led to the gospel by me, it was carrying you away somewhere very dark. Those idols might have been speechless, but they did demand speech, worship. It seems so over the top, doesn't it, in verse 3, when he says, no one in God's spirit ever says, Jesus, be cursed, because no professing Christian, we think, would ever say that sort of thing. But isn't it just the sort of speech the demons demand? And perhaps there's a horrible irony in these verses. As they pride themselves on speaking in strange tongues that they don't understand and getting carried away in spiritual things, what if it isn't actually God's spirit who's controlling them? There's no one to interpret what they're saying. That's clear later on. Church is becoming a racket. It looks more like a pagan temple at times. What if, as Jim Phillips suggests, Jesus be cursed is what these professing Christians are actually muttering without even knowing it. There's more to the spiritual realm than the Holy Spirit of God. There are spiritual experiences on offer out there which might be very, very real and feel very meaningful. But if they don't honor the Lordship of Jesus, they're demonic. And maybe as the Corinthians got themselves deeper and deeper into mysterious, unintelligible things, they'd actually become more and more like those mute idols that they used to worship. So what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, he is nothing like that at all. The true God is a speaking God. He enables lost men and women to say with their mouths and believe in their hearts something that is crystal clear. Jesus is Lord. Not Zeus, not Allah, not Caesar. Jesus alone. And what a big, brave step that is in a pluralistic world to say something so clear and exclusive and costly. It means more, of course, than merely saying the right words to confess so clearly that Jesus alone is Lord. That shows you believe it, doesn't it? It's brave. It's a truth you'll stand on. And that is a miracle which could only be supernatural. Fifteen years ago, I was as dead to the gospel as a rotting corpse. You backwards, bigoted Christians, you had nothing at all to say to someone like me. And the Lord and giver of life said, stand back and watch me restart his heart. 
The Bible talks about human faith in the most miraculous terms of all, turning a lump of stone into something living and beating. Think how many magicians and alchemists over the years have tried to pull that trick off, bringing life out of something cold and dead. It's impossible. If ever you've prayed for a parent, for a husband, for a child to find themselves in Jesus, well, you'll know there is no spiritual work more impossible or more wonderful. Every Christian is a spiritual. If you weren't, then your heart could never beat for Jesus. It could never escape the death and denial and coldness of this world. You are a miracle. Just sitting here, confessing Jesus in the face of a world that thinks it is dangerous to meet and even more dangerous to believe, you're a miracle with a sinful nature that would much rather be its own Lord, do its own thing. You are a miracle as supernatural as Lazarus or the burning bush. One day when every angel and saint is gathered in heaven and we're singing the 16 billionth verse of the latest Getty song in praise of God's mighty works, maybe we'll come to your name and all creation will say, what a miracle. But it cuts both ways, doesn't it? There are Christians out there who do things very differently to us. They talk about spiritual gifts in a way that is very different to us. But they do believe with all their hearts that Jesus is Lord. And if I dismiss their sincerity or divide myself from them over, of all things, the Holy Spirit, well, I'm missing this too. You can tell who the truly spiritual person is simply by how they talk of the Lord Jesus. Not, verses 4 to 11, by the jobs we do for Jesus. Don't confuse what is truly spiritual with whatever fashionable thing proud people praise in one particular church. In Corinth here, there were clearly one or two narrow manifestations of the Spirit's work, which were seen as the properly spiritual stuff. In their case, seemingly, it was tongues that were really up there. But the truth is, we're all the same. We're all tempted to put some ways of serving above others in a kind of spiritual league table. In our sort of church, it is also these speech gifts, isn't it, that we really prize? It's the people who teach the Bible who God is really at work in. And so it's easy for us to think of ministry as a kind of spiritual hack. So often when Christians feel dry or lacking spiritually, we look to fill that hole by going on a course. Spend two years at Bible college. Find a church that will give me a pulpit. Surely, two years learning to teach the Bible, that will bring me closer to God. And often it is the biggest disappointment for a young church apprentice. A year in at Cornhill, they don't feel any more spiritual. Their quiet times are just as rushed as they always were. Their same old struggles with porn or self-esteem or whatever it is are just as real. And verses 4 to 11 explain why that is. Real spirituality has nothing at all to do with the gifts we have or the jobs we do. I think the moment the penny dropped for me on this paragraph was when I was shown two things. The thing that this seems to be about is not really a thing, 
And the list it seems to give is not really a list. So let's start with the not a thing thing before we get to the not a list list. You with me? What is this paragraph all about? What's the thing? Well, spiritual gifts, right? My translation has even stuck that phrase as a big, bold title above it. But it's a phrase Paul never, ever uses. Because as a category, it's not really a thing. I mean, clearly it is a thing in that God the Father is in the business of giving all kinds of good things to his people in his Son through his Spirit. But the Bible never actually calls those spiritual gifts. In fact, there's only one time those two words, pneumatos and charisma, get stuck right together, and it's in Romans chapter 1, verse 12, not talking about any human ability, but to talk about the gift of the gospel that Paul wants to come and bless the church with. They in Corinth want to know about the spirituals, and it might be that Paul is talking about exactly the same sort of thing, but he very deliberately uses a different word, which he repeats again and again through this paragraph. Gift. Given. Something which, by definition, we haven't earned. It's the same basic root as the word grace. And do you see already how different the emphasis is, world apart, in those two ideas? Their word is one that can very easily puff us up and set us apart from one another, spiritual. Paul's word is a word that can only ever humble us and level us and fill us with thanks. Gift. It's an intrinsically humbling thing, isn't it? A word the Corinthians must have hated because he's used that idea already to pop their pride. What do you have, you Corinthians, that you did not receive? You can't be proud about something that was given to you. To boast about a gift is like boasting about how big your overdraft is. I happen to be dyslexic. It meant that whatever recognition I got while I was at vet school, I got because I had extra time to get my words down when I needed it. Because we're fortunate. We live in a day and an age that is understanding and inclusive. But imagine that I was operating on someone's precious dog, and they were all anxious and looking for reassurance, and I said to them, you know, it's a funny thing, but I only ever scraped through vet school because I was given loads of extra time on every single test. It's the last thing you'd ever brag about, isn't it? You can't boast in something you're given. When you read the word gift, the emphasis is on grace. It's a grace gift. Now that is very different to how we tend to use the idea of giftedness in our everyday speech. We've made it much more like the Corinthian word, strangely. We talk about our giftedness as what makes us unique. We think it comes from our own innate personality. We use it to advance our careers, mark us out. Paul's message is exactly the opposite. Our gifts are not what make us unique. They're what unite us in the grace of one spirit. Our gifts don't come from our own innate talent. There's a generous God who put them there. Our gifts are not for raising us up. They're for blessing other people with, not me. 
And so Paul pulls the conversation away from us as spiritual people and our spiritual things and focuses it instead on God the Holy Spirit, the kind and generous giver. In fact, he goes even further, doesn't he? He wants them to see how those gifts come not simply from the Spirit, but from God the Trinity. Verse 4, there's a whole range of gifts, but the same Spirit. Verse 5, a whole range of service, another word for exactly the same thing, but one Lord Jesus. A whole range of activities, another word again, but one God the Father at work in us all. The works of God, the Holy Trinity, are undivided. Don't fixate on one person as if he's somehow into different stuff that you're missing out on. The Spirit is interested in just the same things as the Son and the Father. And the whole of God, the Trinity, is at work inseparably in every single Christian who owns Jesus as Lord. So the point of the whole paragraph is what opened it up in verse 4, and it's what's repeated at the end in verse 11. There are all sorts of different ways that God is at work in his people, a whole variety of gifts. But it's the same Spirit uniting us in all that amazing diversity. Verse 11, all of our gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit, and he gives good things out to every single Christian. Why verse 7? Well, for the same reason God the Trinity does anything. He loves his church. The Spirit is just like the Son. His gifts are not things to puff me up and help me find my own special identity and know his gifts are for me to use in love for the sake of others. God is revealing something about his grace, manifesting his spirit for all of us, through every single one of us. And if he gives good things like that to every Christian, and if every good thing we have comes through him, then how can any one of those gifts be more spiritual than any other? To say spiritual gift, that implies there's some other sort of gifts that's somehow unspiritual, less spiritual. In other words, it does exactly what the Corinthians were busy doing, that phrase. It's a bit like saying the electric interweb or tasty bacon. All bacon is tasty. You can't have untasty bacon. It's not a thing. You can't have an unspiritual gift. It's not a thing. The point is that every gift is spiritual just like every Christian is spiritual. Because unless God's spirit unites us to his son, then we have nothing at all. There is no good thing you or I have that we don't have the grace of God to thank for. And that brings us to the list that is not a list. What Paul is doing in verses 8 to 10 is precisely the opposite of setting out a menu of activities that we ought to look for in people who know more of the spirit. The point is to illustrate the whole amazing range of ways that God works in his people. It's all about the unity of the Spirit amid this extraordinary diversity of his church. Which is why no two lists like this in the New Testament are ever the same. There is no list. There is no category of spiritual gift. And if that's not a thing, 
then there can't be any fixed number of them. God blesses all of his people with all sorts of gifts for us to use for the sake of everyone. And these happen to be the examples it was helpful to discuss here in Corinth. And just notice how carefully chosen they are. What's the first thing that comes to mind when Paul thinks of the work of the Holy Spirit? Not visions, not being slain in the Spirit. No, verse 8, the first thing that comes to mind is words of wisdom and knowledge. Ring any bells? Two big Corinthian words which Paul spent the first part of this letter reclaiming. We know now, don't we, what Paul means by wisdom. That word has content. It means the cross. The Holy Spirit, you see, doesn't belong to the strong, to the showmen, the philosophers, the orators. No, the truly spiritual stuff is speaking those simple words of encouragement to a brother who needs to see more about the cross. The message which looked so weak to them but turns whole lives upside down. Some are given opportunities to bless God's people with that real wisdom and knowledge. Others are given different stuff, special ability to trust the Lord, verse 9, gifts of healing, the working of miracles, or maybe powerful works of ministry there. Then there's a gift that we might call spiritual discernment, to recognize that there is more to the spiritual realm than what we can see. That not everything people valued in Corinth came from the true God. And yes, right at the end, even the example you Corinthians treasure so much, the gift of tongues or unknown languages. Now, if you want to know whether we should expect all of that today or whether it's for you, well, I'm afraid you're looking in the wrong place. It's just not what Paul's talking about here. He doesn't tell us. We'll come back to tongues and prophecy in a few chapters' time, and you can pin me down at the end if you like. But we can't even know for sure exactly what those things looked like back then, because his point here isn't to help us go seeking them. His point was to show how wide is the range of what we've already got, how wonderfully God works in ordinary people. And so, verse 11 only God gets to make distinctions between us. The Spirit discriminates. The Spirit decides who gets what gift. It's not up to us what we're given. He apportions as he wills. That's the thing with gift, isn't it? If it's really a gift, we have no right to any of them. I might wish he'd made me an apostle, but that is a gift he's finished handing out. I might wish he'd made me the music guy. That is a job that would give me so much joy. But I spent 12 long years trying to learn the guitar, and I never got beyond three chords. And even 1980s praise songs need more than that. It's not going to happen. So I have to love and serve others with what I've got, what others recognize in me. But he has all sorts of good things for every one of us. That's the point. Maybe the things he's given you don't even have a name. You won't find them on any of the so-called lists in the New Testament or any of those books on discerning your spiritual gift. The thing God has given you is a love for world mission. And you don't know it, but when you pray on a Thursday night, 
it puts a song in everyone's heart. Maybe he's given you an instinct for noticing someone who's left out. What would you even call that? It's not going to go on a badge, is it? But Sunday by Sunday, you make people feel welcome and loved who no one else paid attention to. And that's how miracles happen in church. It's how Jesus built his kingdom. There's no one role in church, no one way of serving that makes you more spiritual. Church is full of wise old widows with far more grace than us young pastors fresh out of theological college. And that is not a bug. That's a feature. It's how it's meant to be. It's what makes this living organism so wonderful. It means that an ordinary little church like ours is absolutely bursting with potential because there is nobody in the room who knows the Lord Jesus and doesn't have something of the spirit that only they can bring to Edinburgh North Church. We should never feel less valued, less needed, because what we have isn't the thing that Christians tend to lift high. I am blessed, just like every other brother and sister, with undeserved gifts from God to help me serve other people. So the question isn't, how do I discover the gift which will make me feel more spiritual? Because there is nothing more spiritual than owning the Lordship of Jesus and loving his people. The right question is, if the triune God is at work, even in me, filling me with things I don't deserve, then how can I use those things less for myself and more for the ones Jesus died to save? How can I treat all of them in just the same way as I treat an apostle or a prophet or a preacher? So then what is the one secret that God thinks will unlock our experience of the Spirit? It's that we have him already. Breathing life into our faith, that is informed spirituality. We don't need to worry about looking over our shoulders at what other people have. We can enjoy what he's given us by using it to love the ones he's made our brothers and sisters by sheer grace. Let's bow our heads and ask for his help in doing that. Loving and generous God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you that just like every brother and sister sitting around us, you have showered each one of us with undeserved, supernatural gifts of grace. Thank you that you have done the impossible in every single heart that owns Jesus as Lord. So help us, we pray, to recognize your spirit in each other and to rejoice in his work as we see it. Help us long to serve one another in the unity of the Holy Spirit and to the praise of your wonderful, redeeming power. In Jesus' name, amen.